Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. All right, would you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, where we are going to resume our sermon series entitled The Fullness of Life which comes from John chapter 10, verse 10, where Jesus said, he proclaimed, he promised, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. A full life is an abundant life. It is a life that is fruitful and victorious. And it's that victorious part that we're going to be focusing on in the weeks to come. So far, we've looked at several key elements of a full or abundant life. They include abiding in Christ, that image of Jesus being the vine, us being the branches, and how Jesus produces fruit through us called the fruit of the Spirit. And then we just came through a segment where we talked about the gifts of the Spirit, acknowledging that we will never become all that God intended for us to be unless we are exercising the gifts that God has given to us. And now today, a brand new portion of the series, the warfare of the Spirit the warfare of the Spirit. And as we've done before, we're going to preach this topic expositionally. And we've mentioned this before, but I think it's important to review. What this means is that, you know, topical preaching, which is a very valid, um, very fine form of preaching, but it begins with a topic, and then scripture passages are chosen to explain the topic. I tend, by and large, to focus on what we call expositional preaching. It begins with a text. And scripture passages are explained and applied to a topic. And so what we are going to do, much as we did through um, the gifts of the Spirit when we preached through 1 Corinthians 10 through 12, we will preach the topic of spiritual warfare expositionally by being very deliberate and working through this passage of scripture, which is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. And so would you please stand with me as I read the text today? We're only going to focus on three verses Verses 10 through 12, in the big picture, we'll be working our way through verses 10 through 20. It says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this particular text of Scripture. It has so much to teach us about how to live victoriously. And so in the moments that we have together right now, would you open our ears? Would you open our minds and our hearts to receive exactly what it is that you have for us? God, I pray for your help in proclaiming the truth of this text this morning and ask that at the end of the day, um, you would empower my speech and you would empower our listening because we need your help. And God, we thank you that victory is promised through Jesus Christ. And we declare it to be so in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. amen. You may be seated. So we have right here in this passage, verses 10 through 12, really an introduction to spiritual warfare. This is going to lay the groundwork for what we talk about in verses 13 through 20. And it really breaks down into four main sections. We have the context in verse 10. We have the contender in verses 11 through 12. 
We have the conflict in verse 12, and we have the conquest in verses 10 through 11, and I've just got to brag a little bit. That is alliteration that even Pastor Mike Stambaugh would appreciate. Am I right? <laughs> kind of sounds familiar. Sounds like a Mike Stambaugh outline. So uh, let's look at the first of these, which is the context in verse 10. Our passage begins very simply. It says, finally. That's a strange place for us to begin, isn't it? Finally. It makes us feel like we're walking into the middle of a movie, wondering what happened before this word finally. And the answer is a lot has happened before this word finally. And some, In fact, some have argued, and perhaps appropriately so, that you can't really preach Ephesians chapter 6 without first preaching Ephesians 1 through 5, and they may very well have a good point. And here's why. The book of Ephesians really depicts us as believers in three different postures, three different postures. The first posture is that we are seated. We are seated in verse, or chapters 1 through 3. It says, you have been seated with Christ, and this refers to our identity in him. The next posture is walk. And it is, we walk worthy of the calling, living out the gospel. And then finally, the third posture is stand. Stand firm in the face of any spiritual opposition. So three postures, seated, walk, stand. And what you will notice about the structure of the book of Ephesians is that chapters one through three are mainly doctrinal, all right? Teaching us the significance of what it means to have our identity in Christ, and that phrase, in Christ, could you all say that with me, in Christ? That is really the key to the whole book. And it's really the key to spiritual warfare. Paul goes to incredibly great lengths in chapters 1 through 3 to remind us as believers of all that we are in Christ. Now check this out and be encouraged. And if you want some homework that is going to bring great joy to your soul, go to Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 and write down all that is ours in Christ. I'm going to very quickly walk you through it right now, but I guarantee it'll be more rewarding if you do it yourself. First of all, in Ephesians chapter 1, in Christ we are saints. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing. We are chosen and predestined. We are accepted. We are redeemed. We are rich. We are indwelled and sealed by the Holy Spirit, and we are powerful. How do you like that? But wait, there's more. Chapter 2. We are raised to new life and seated in heavenly places. We are saved. We are God's workmanship. We are brought near to God. We are reconciled, and we are part of God's family. How about that? But wait, there's more. Chapter 3, in Christ we are heirs of God, we are members of Christ's body, we are partakers in the promises of God, we are mirrors that display the glory of God, we are conduits of God's power and displays of God's glory. How does all that make you feel? It makes me feel invincible, because in a sense, in Christ we are. And as we will see, who we are in Christ has profound implications for how we are to wage victorious spiritual warfare. Being in that position is the key to victory. So, while chapters 1 through 3 are mainly doctrinal, chapters 4 through 6 are mainly practical. They're mainly practical, teaching us how we are to live in Christ. This is the application part of the book, answering the question, how should we then live? And it should be carefully noted that the how of chapters 4 through 6 is completely rooted in the who of chapters 1 through 3. It all comes back to the significance of that phrase, in Christ. So that word, finally, it means a lot, doesn't it? It tells us, it means that in light of all that Paul has taught us about who we are in Christ, then this is how we are to wage victorious spiritual warfare. 
And I got to tell you that the believers in Ephesus, they needed this instruction badly. Why? Because Ephesus was a center of idolatry and demonic activity. Ephesus was a center of idolatry and demonic activity. Um, If you need some proof of that, Turn to Acts chapter 19. We're going to walk through that very, very quickly. Paul is ministering in the city of Ephesus. He's on his third missionary journey. And while he is there in Acts 19, there are three significant things that happen related to spiritual warfare. I'm sure that there were more, but we get these glimpses in Acts chapter 19. First, there was a demonic manifestation. A demonic manifestation. And a quite, quite a violent one at that. It's a, actually one of these very graphic episodes violent in nature in the scriptures. It says in chapter 19, verse 13 in Acts, then some itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, And Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. You talk about spiritual warfare, right? This is a cautionary tale of what happens when you attempt to engage in spiritual warfare without being in Christ, without having his authority and his power. Also, the episode illustrates for us the spiritual climate in Ephesus. The fact that there was either the need or the demand for there to be exorcists tells us that evil spirits were quite active in the city where Paul was ministering. And so there was this demonic manifestation. Next, there was radical repentance. There was radical repentance. Look at verse 17. And what just happened there became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So again, we're reminded that Ephesus is a center for idolatry and demonic activity. Not only was there the demand for exorcists, but there was a big business in the publication of books that gave instruction in magic arts. The occult was big business in Ephesus. But in this particular moment, when it's interesting, isn't it? Demons gave glory to God in acknowledging his power. In that particular moment, when the eyes of the people were open to the schemes of Satan and the power of the one true living God, it led them to radical repentance and the burning of these demonic books. The only problem was that this directly impacted the economy of Ephesus. And whenever you touch the economy, people get riled up. The occult was about to go out of business in Ephesus which led to a reactionary riot in verse 23, a reactionary riot. It says, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. 
And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship." When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. So as Demetrius has stated, the preeminent god among the false gods of Ephesus was this one, the goddess Artemis. And the prior radical repentance threatened to put out of business those who made silver trinkets and all things associated with the idle business of worship. And so there was a great riot that forced Paul and his companions out of the city. Now again, the the purpose of revisiting this is that it shows us the spiritual climate in Ephesus, that it was a center of idolatry and demonic activity. So you begin to understand why Paul writes so forcefully in our text today and in the days to come about spiritual warfare. The believers in Ephesus, they desperately needed this instruction, and so do we, and so do we. So that is the context. Let's move on to the contender in spiritual warfare. The contender, meaning our enemy. Who is our enemy? The one who makes war against us and is bent on our destruction. Well, the first thing that we learn in verse 12 is who our enemy is not. Who our enemy is not. It says in verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, meaning that people are not the enemy. People are not the enemy. It's easy to perceive them as the enemy. Why? Because they're visible. They're what we see. They're what our senses experience. But they are not the enemy. The evil done by people is merely the symptom of a much deeper cause. The symptom of a much deeper cause. When we place our attention of people and make them the enemy, we're wasting our time. It is like, I mean, anybody have some dandelions in their yard right now? You know, there's that one yard in every neighborhood. Mine is that yard, and um, we have lots of dandelions. Um, when you lop off the dandelions with a mower, it may look pretty good momentarily, and you feel pretty good about it, but what happens? <laughs> they just come back, and stronger unless we get to the root of the problem. And so author and pastor Tony Evans, he helps us to get to the root of spiritual warfare when he defines it this way. He says, spiritual warfare is that conflict being waged in the invisible spiritual realm that is being manifest in the visible physical realm. Let me say that again. Spiritual warfare is that conflict being waged in the invisible spiritual realm that is being manifest in the visible physical realm. He goes on to say, the the implications of this are that everything visible and physical is the result of something invisible and spiritual. Therefore, only by addressing the invisible spiritual cause can we fix what is wrong with our visible physical lives. That's really important. I wonder how much time and energy have we wasted by attempting to make war in the physical, visible realm, lopping off the heads of dandelions, wondering why it's not working, when the root of the problem is in the invisible spiritual realm. For this reason... 
The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10.3, he said, For though we walk in the flesh, and we do, the physical realm, we are not waging war according to the flesh. So stop it. It doesn't work. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to demolish, destroy strongholds. We are not waging war according to the flesh. So Paul knew that when he was being persecuted in all manner of ways, beaten with rods, imprisoned, left for dead, shipwrecked, stoned at the hands of people in the physical realm, he knew that these people were not the real enemy. They were merely symptoms of a much deeper cause. So, who then is the real enemy? Back to verse 11. It says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil. Who is our real enemy? It is in Greek, diabolos, which means slanderer or accuser. Satan, the devil. Satan, our adversary. He is the devil, diabolos, because he accuses God's people day and night before the throne of God. Now, most of you know the story. Satan, the devil, is a fallen angel who is determined to steal God's glory in whatever means necessary, and he largely does this through warring against us, God's people. And so the scriptures give us some alarming warnings regarding this enemy. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's pretty graphic and alarming. How would you feel if you went out for a walk this afternoon and you encountered an uncaged, wild, prowling, and roaring lion? That would get your attention. But such is our reality in the spiritual realm. That is the way it is. Jesus says of the devil, of Satan, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And some of you can look around at the collateral damage in your lives and you can point to places where you've seen the success of the enemy in stealing, killing, and destroying. And not only is he called the accuser, a lion, and a thief, but Scripture also calls him a host of other names so that we know who we're dealing with. He is the dragon, the evil one, Beelzebub, the serpent, the prince of this age, the adversary, the prince of demons, the prince of the power of the air, the god of this age, the accuser of the brethren, the spirit of disobedience, the deceiver of the whole world, Abaddon or Apollyon, the father of lies, the king over the demons, the tempter, and Lucifer. Clearly, Scripture has a lot to say about our enemy, the devil, so that we will have insight into the nature of our enemy. Well, how should we respond to all of this? C.S. Lewis, he said this. He said, humanity falls into two equal and opposite errors concerning the devil. Either they take him altogether too seriously, or they do not take him seriously enough. Which side do you think we tend to fall on? It's my contention that we likely, especially in our Western world where we've got everything figured out from a physical standpoint, right? We've got a, a reason um, and a rationale for everything in our own minds. We have an explanation. It's my contention that we probably fall into the latter category, not taking him seriously enough. And that we greatly underestimate both his passion for our destruction, and his power to bring it about. Power which is exercised carefully through strategized schemes. Look at verse 11. 
It says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That word schemes comes from the Greek methodia. It means methods. We get our word method from that. And the point that I want you to see in this word, that the devil has schemes and methods, is that Satan's attacks are not haphazard or random. Satan's attacks are not haphazard or random. Rather, they are carefully planned and executed. It's interesting, you turn on uh, the news networks and you hear updates on the war in Ukraine and they talk about how Russia, it seems like so much of what they're doing is not well-planned, it's not well-coordinated, and that is not the case with Satan, the devil. His His attacks are carefully planned and executed, and he knows where each one of us are vulnerable, where each one of us are weak. And so it is of vital importance that we know our enemy and his playbook, as it says in 2 Corinthians 2.11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. We are not ignorant of his designs, of his schemes, of his methods. And here's an important truth, right? An ignorant soldier is an unprepared soldier, And an unprepared soldier is inevitably going to be a defeated soldier. There are, in fact, tragic, tragic consequences that result for being unprepared for battle. Much as the United States experienced long ago at Pearl Harbor. The Pacific Fleet was unprepared, and the result was the death of 2,403 U.S. personnel and the destruction of nearly 19 Navy ships, including eight battleships. And tragically... I believe that this kind of unpreparedness describes the church today, resulting in so many being needlessly, and I emphasize that word, needlessly defeated in spiritual warfare. And how this relates to our series on the full or abundant life is this. A defeated life is not an abundant life. A defeated life is not an abundant life. If we are ever to experience the full or abundant life that Jesus intends for us, we must learn to be victorious in spiritual warfare. Now, let me ask you, if you were the devil, what schemes or methods or strategies would you employ? As we read the scriptures, we see that his primary methods of attack include things like temptation. We see that in the Garden of Eden. With Eve, with Adam, we see that in the wilderness with Jesus. We've already seen that that word diabolos refers to accusation. Intimidation, I think one of Satan's greatest things is to cause us to be fearful, to be fearful of all kinds of different things. Humiliation and shame and division. Temptation, accusation, intimidation, humiliation, division. One of the the key takeaways from this list is the fact that the battlefield in spiritual warfare is the mind. The battlefield in spiritual warfare is the mind, which is why we are urged in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Transformed by the renewal of your mind. That is why... Your time in the Word daily matters so much. That is why Scripture memory matters so much because these are instruments for the renewal of our minds in truth so that we are able to overcome the lies of the enemy that he bombards us with all day long. And it's why it's so important that you think about what you're thinking about. That you think about what you're listening to on the radio that you think about what you are watching on the screen, 
that you think about the information that you're taking in through social media because I guarantee you, Satan uses all of these to go to the battlefield of the mind, plant lies there, and overcome people who do not need to be defeated. Well, there is some good news in all this, and the good news is this. As a created being, Satan is not omnipresent. As a created being, Satan is not omnipresent. He can only be one place at one time. Why? Well, because as we know, the devil was originally a creation of God, a good creation, an angel with a high rank who then rebelled, rebelled against God. And so what this tells us is that this cosmic conflict between God and Satan, it is not between two equals, is it? No, God the creator and Satan the creature way down here. God is infinitely more powerful than Satan. That's the good news. God more powerful, Satan is not omnipresent, he can only be one place at one time. The bad news is this, Satan has an extensive army of fallen angels under his command. Satan has an extensive army of fallen angels under his command. Scripture seems to indicate that as many as one-third of all of the angels that God created followed Satan's lead and rebelled against God. So when we are spiritually attacked, it is most likely not Satan himself attacking us, but one of his soldiers, one of his demonic soldiers. And they are, in fact, a formidable enemy. Listen to how they're described in verse 12. They're referred to as the authorities against the cosmic powers, powers over this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, when we put this all kind of together in a list and we'd see what to take away from this, just as Satan's schemes are carefully planned and executed, his army is strategically organized and deployed. His army is strategically organized and deployed. They're given these four classifications. They're called rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And we're not given enough information to know exactly how all this works, but we are given enough information to see and to infer that the devil and his demons are deadly serious about our destruction. And they're strategizing and they're organizing to accomplish that end. And that ought to get our attention, should it not? This isn't a game, this is war. And the stakes could not be any higher. So that is the context. That is the contender. Let's look briefly at the conflict. What is the battle like? Verse 12 gives us some graphic description of the conflict. It says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Paul Hannes, you like that, don't you? Yeah, you like that. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Interesting terminology that Paul uses, wrestling. What is the nature of wrestling? I could have Paul come up here and give us a dissertation on the nature of wrestling, but I, I know enough to know it's up close and personal, is it not? It's intense and in your face. It's also very technical and strategic. This is, in fact, the nature of our spiritual warfare. You know, warfare, more and more, seems to be moving toward the kind of this kind of thing where you might have a, um, somebody in Las Vegas in a room with a joystick flying a drone across the world somewhere and firing a missile. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about wrestling. We're talking about up-close, personal, in-your-face, technical, and strategic. Um, rather, this is, this is hand-to-hand fighting. That's what Paul's getting at requiring great skill and strategy and determination. This is the kind of hand-to-hand combat that took place in the desert in Matthew 4 between Satan and Jesus. 
And we will study that wrestling match in much greater detail in a few weeks when we talk about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But for now, it is enough for you to know that the nature of the conflict is very personal, very strategic, and it is very intense. And my question for you this morning is this, are you as serious about this conflict as Satan is? Are you as serious about this conflict as Satan is? Because he is deadly serious. And so that is the context, the contender, the conflict. Let's finish up by looking at the conquest. This is the good news this morning. Back to verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We are given two specific commands in these verses regarding spiritual warfare. The first of these commands is this. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. Now, notice that it doesn't say, be strong in yourself. Be strong in yourself. For the fact of the matter is, you have no strength in yourself. You have no strength in yourself, especially when it comes to dealing with demons. Human beings are no match for angels. Angels will win a battle against humans every single time. Remember the story that we just had in Acts 19 about those Jewish exorcists who went head-to-head with demons? How'd that go? Not good. We are no match for demons. Therefore, our strength for spiritual warfare has to come from somewhere else, somewhere beyond ourselves. Where does it come from? The text says we are to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. We are to be strong in Christ. And that ought to ring a bell, right? Why? Because what did we say the first three chapters of Ephesians was all about? It's about all that is ours in that position of being in Christ. And that's why Paul's passionate desire for the Ephesians and his passionate desire for us is that we would all know, as it says in Ephesians 1.19, Paul says, church, I want you to get this. I want you to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Undefeated. Undefeated. Now I want you to see something pretty cool here. I love it when dots connect. Let's go back to uh, verse 19 of chapter 1 just for a second, okay? And it says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power, that's dunamis in the Greek, toward us who believe, according to the working of his great kratos, might, iskus. These are all things that we have when we are in Christ, when we belong to him, when we put our trust in Jesus as both Lord and Savior. These are the things we receive, dunamis, kratos, and iskus, power, strength, and might. And to what measure do we have them? Immeasurable greatness. Now let's jump ahead back into our text, chapter 6, verse 10, where Paul is instructing us in spiritual warfare. We're going to see these same three words used in the same order. He says, finally, be strong, dunamis, in the Lord, and in the strength, kratos, of his might, iskus. That same trio of strength, power, and might, which Paul says is ours in chapter 1, is our source of victory in spiritual warfare in chapter 6. And it is that very same 
dunamis, kratos, and iskus that raised Jesus from the dead. What all of this means is that because of our position in Christ, we do not fight for victory, we fight from victory. Isn't that great? We do not fight for victory, but we fight from victory because of the cross, because of the empty tomb, because of the victory over Satan that Jesus has already won. He's done it. Now we are in Christ. We are in him, the victorious one, which is why we can say in Romans 8, 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So it doesn't matter how strong a demon is. It doesn't matter how strong Satan is. We belong to and are in the one who is omnipotent, who is all-powerful. Now, I don't know about you, though. This does raise kind of a nagging question for me. If the battle has already been won, and it has, then why do we still have to fight? If the battle has already been won, why do we still have to fight? My, my, My theory is this. God receives the most glory when he defeats Satan through frail creatures like us. Creatures who, in and of ourselves, we have no strength, we have no power, we're sitting ducks for Satan on our own, but in Christ, we are able to wage victorious spiritual warfare, and it must just absolutely bring humiliation to Satan and his forces when people, empowered by the Holy Spirit, with all the promises of God, are able to overcome Satan and his armies. That's why it says in Romans 16, 20, I love this, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Whose feet? Your feet. My feet. Our feet. God enforces Christ's ultimate victory through us, frail human beings made of dust. And the result is Colossians 2.15, where it talks about Jesus. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so we have been given a meaningful role to play in enforcing Christ's ultimate victory, which I find to be incredibly energizing. But how in tune are we really to that role? And how prepared are we for battle? So the first commandment in the conquest is to be strong in the Lord. The second command is put on the whole armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God, which will be our subject for the next few weeks. We'll take a look at each piece of armor and its strategic role in warfare. That armor includes the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, and prayer. You've heard that saying that clothes make the man or the woman, right? Nowhere is it more true than in spiritual warfare. God has given to us very specific weaponry to use in overcoming the enemy. And most likely, Paul is writing this passage when he's chained to a Roman soldier. So all he has to do is kind of look next to him and see each piece of armor and make spiritual application. So, That is the context, the contender, the conflict, the conquest. Let's talk about application. How should we then live? Three very simple points, which we've already kind of brought out most of them. Let's do it again. Number one, uh, make sure, make sure that you are in Christ. Can't emphasize this enough. All of the promises, all of the resources, all of the blessings belong exclusively to those who know Jesus Christ as both Lord and Savior. And again, if you just need a reminder of that, go back to Acts 19 and those itinerant Jewish exorcists who got beat up really, really bad when they did not have this. 
Spiritual victory is only for those who are in Christ. And so I ask you this morning, have you turned from your sin and turned to Jesus alone and put your trust in Him alone for forgiveness so that you are in Christ and therefore fully resourced to overcome whatever the enemy may throw at you? So step number one in spiritual warfare is to make sure that you are in Christ. Number two, strengthen yourself in Christ strengthen yourself in Christ. This goes back actually all the way to the very beginning of our series when we discussed abiding in Christ. Those two things are synonymous, I believe. Abiding and strengthening. We are strengthened when we abide. To abide in Christ means to stay connected to Him as a branch stays connected to the vine and then is able to bear much fruit. We stay connected to Jesus by communing with Him, fellowshipping with Him, And not in a 10-minute devotional at some point in the day, but all the day long, communing with Him, fellowshipping with Him through His Word, through prayer, through thanksgiving, through worship, through obedience. All of these things play a meaningful role in strengthening ourselves in the Lord so that we are prepared for spiritual battle. Your spiritual disciplines are not merely a box to check. All right? They are the means by which you are strengthened in the Lord so that you will not be overcome by the enemy. So, make sure that you are in Christ. Strengthen yourself in Christ. Number three, wage war in Christ. Wage war in Christ. Meaning that we must start thinking like soldiers rather than civilians. We must start thinking like soldiers rather than civilians. Too often we live each day as if we're civilians at peacetime rather than soldiers at wartime. Make no mistake, Satan and his demons are at war. Whether you realize it or not, whether you want it to be true or not, it is true. Too often we are oblivious and unprepared for the attacks that come against us. And we cannot be victorious this way. That is when we are needlessly defeated. We cannot live full or abundant lives when we are defeated. So we must embrace our roles as soldiers in God's army ready to do battle against the enemy of our souls. Now the encouraging thing is, again, this isn't about you gritting your teeth and trying to be a tough man or woman. The battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. And so the remainder of Ephesians 6 will teach us how to do this, how we are to wage victorious warfare in Christ. As we close today, I'd like us to pray together a prayer in unison. Would you please stand with me as we pray this together in unison? Let us pray. Strengthen my faith, Lord. Forgive my sins, so that I may be clean in your righteousness. Make me brave so I can stand and fight the spiritual battles in my life and in our world. Give me your wisdom and discernment so I won't be caught off guard. Together, Lord, we'll win because in truth you already have. While evil still roams, The power of your name and your blood rises up to defeat and bring us victory against every evil planned against us. While malicious actions may disturb us, we use the armor of God you have given us to stand firm. You will bring justice in due time 
for all the harm and needless violence aimed at your children. Until then, we remain in your presence, aligned with your purposes, and we look to you as our supreme commander and protector. Help us to avoid temptation and deliver us from evil, Lord. You are the mighty one, the one who will ultimately bring all evil to light. With you, Jesus, we are safe. Amen.